Museum Smith. I'm the Blue Badge Guide and the local historian, and my particular interest is in the Georgian period, which lasted from 1715, accession of George I, to 1830. Um, for the last three or four years, I've been researching and giving talks on various aspects of life in Norwich during this period. In these talks, I aim not only to outline what happened in Norwich, but also to put it in the context of developments elsewhere in the country. And just to remind you, up till 1750, Norwich was still the second most populous city after London, although later surpassed by other city manufacturing and port cities, it was still notable as one of England's <coughs> leading manufacturing towns whose textiles were imported, exported throughout the world, it was a historic city governed by an ancient charter, a regional capital, the centre of a rich agricultural region, and last but not least, <coughs> the seat of a bishop with an impressive cathedral. So today my subject is religion. Quite often you get a good impression of Britain from foreign visitors, particularly during this period. So I start with a French philosopher, Voltaire, who came to this country in 1726 after being released from the Bastille. And when he, um, one of the things he noted was that early Georgian England was a land of religious sects. An Englishman as a free man, he wrote, goes to heaven by whichever route pleases him. And of course he was comparing the situation in England to the repressive uh, regime in France. So in this talk I'm going to look at the fortunes of the various religious denominations in England and then at the churches and chapels and meeting houses in Norwich where the Norwich citizen could look for his or her way to heaven. As always there are some interesting ways in which Norwich or more particularly Norfolk did different. <coughs> so to start with the Church of England. At the beginning of the Georgian period most Englishmen still looked for their way to heaven through the Church of England. It had a, a, a turbulent recent history and was deeply ingrained in its consciousness that it had been overthrown in Cromwell's Great Rebellion less than a century before. The Archbishop of Canterbury had been executed, but its fortunes had been revived by the restoration of Charles II in 1660, which restored not only the monarchy, but also the Church of <coughs> England, and the glorious revolution of 1688, which cemented the links between the monarchy <coughs> But, um, between the monarchy and the church, although at that time, for the first time, dissenting churches were also tolerated. So now, at the beginning of the Georgian era, it dominated English society, it, it dominated uh, the monarchy and the aristocracy. Its bishops sat in the House of Lords, as they still do. It legitimised the existing social order and attempted to inculcate humility, submission and, and obedience. 
but despite its privileged position, the hold of the established church on the population began to loosen, particularly from about the 1750s. At parish level, the idealized picture of the village pastor looking after his flock didn't always still hold good. Despite some help from the state, the benefices on which the parish church clergy relied <coughs> to provide their income were often inadequate. To make ends meet, many held benefices in several parishes, but that caused problems. Inevitably, pastoral work was neglected in parishes where they were not resident, and we'll see how that works out in Norwich. Attendance at church services began to decline. In 1750, the established church still counted for about 90% of churchgoers and continued to be used almost universally for the rites of baptism, confirmation, marriage and burial. <coughs> but by the first religious census, 20 years after the end of the Georgian period, it had declined. Out of a population, the total population of 17.9 million, 10.8 million still attended church, but only a minority of those attended the Church of England. But it was not all negative. The Church of England has an important role in education. Evangelical Anglicans, like William Wilberforce, make their presence felt, uh, particularly on issues such as the campaign against, against slavery. So now let's talk about the Church of England in Norwich. Norwich was of course the centre of a diocese and the seat of a bishop. Like other Georgian bishops, the bishops of Norwich were kept busy with their duties in London at the, in the House of Lords. In their absence, the diocesan administration was looked after by an army of officials, chancellors, archdeacons, registrars. In fact, in the 12 years between 1707 and 1806, the incumbent bishop didn't spend any part of the year <coughs> at all in his diocese. Some didn't even attend their own enthronements. At least three <laughs> were enthroned by proxy. <laughs> But individual bishops did vary in the attention they devoted to the affairs of the diocese. <coughs> Some, like Philip Young, were said to be famously idle, but others were more active. On taking over from Young in 1783, Lewis Baggett criticised what he called the enormous easiness and inactivity of his predecessor and he displayed great energy in tackling non-residents among the cl clergy and the, and the administration of Norwich charity schools. But Henry Bathurst, at the beginning of the, of the 1800s, was the most criticized. He was said to have been a compulsive whist player, a shockingly bad administrator, and he spent the, the winter at Bath, Cheltenham, and Malvern. During his incumbency, Norwich became known as the Dead Sea. But to his credit, almost alo um, alone among his fellow Eng English bishops, 
He, sorted, he, he supported liberal causes such as Catholic emancipation and parliamentary reform. The cathedral, of course, was at the centre of the diocese. It had not been sympathetically treated in the Civil War and Commonwealth period when it survived attempts by Yarmouth Corporation to have it demolished and the stones used to build up Yarmouth Harbour. <laughs> Two further decades of neglect at the beginning of the Georgian era, however, were reversed by a major programme of refurbishment in the 1740s by Bishop Gooch. But despite the grandeur of the setting, regular services were sometimes conducted in a rather irreverent manner. One unsympathetic observer in 1799 complained that the litany was read in, quote, a guttural muttering, equated by the priest's haste to finish the task. Even ordination was not <coughs> always treated seriously. Two candidates in 1761, quote, behaved in a very indecent manner, for upon taking the oaths of allegiance and supremacy, both of these gentlemen, while they stood in the presence of the bishop, were so indiscreet as to laugh, even when they had the Bible in their hands. <coughs> Nevertheless, Norwich Cathedral was the place to be seen if you wanted to get on in the world. The famous diarist <coughs> Silas Neville wrote in 1783, service at the cathedral, some things I don't approve of, but these I pass over in my mind. I intend being there every Sunday morning, as attention of this kind is necessary in a professional man. He must accommodate himself in some degree to the manners and principles of those he expects to employ him. Then we come to the individual Norwich parishes, <coughs> which of course, along with the nearly thousand others in the diocese, were supervised by the diocesan bureaucracy based at the cathedral. Evidence of their fate, of their fortunes, can be gathered from the answers to questions posed by the diocese and contained in periodic what are called visitation reports and these are preserved in the uh, Norfolk Record Office. Sort of um, 18th century Ofsted reports I suppose. Um, and I will use some of the answers to the visitation reports for 1784 to give a snapshot of the health of the Norwich parishes in the mid-Georgian era. St. Peter Mancroft, of course, was by far the most active and wealthy parish church. <coughs> its rich endowment provided for the employment of several officers, including two ministers, an organist and a clerk. Prayers held twice a day, led by a reader, a post endowed by benefaction, stipulating daily prayers at 9am and 3pm. It was also active in charity schools, the only parish which actually provided a school building, otherwise teachers were expected to provide themselves with a house. The congregation of St Peter Mancroft, including several leading families, include many of those who became mayors, and there's the, <coughs> the, the mace rests inside. It was also a part of the parish of the wealthy 
shopkeepers. While regular services were well attended, the number of those who regularly attended Holy Communion was not large, between 60 and 90, perhaps 100, out of a parish population of about 2,000. Apart from that, of course, there were many other, there were over 30 other parish churches in Georgian Norwich. Although the buildings were a source of civic pride and they were celebrated in maps, as you see here, and contemporary histories, their situation, as shown in the visitation reports, was actually not so rosy. In 1784, almost all the visitation reports either expressed concern about the numbers staying away from church or else admitted to ignorance about the state of the, <coughs> the extent of the problem. Even at St Andrews, the second largest church on a par with St Peter Mancroft in terms of the status of its congregation, attendance at services was giving cause for concern. Some persons of the first rank, it was reported, failed to turn up on Sunday. But overwhelmingly, non-attendance at church was identified as a class phenomenon, predominantly affecting those known as the inferior ranks of society. As St Augustine's reported, there are too many of those who absent themselves from public worship in every parish of the city, except amongst the most, especially amongst the most inferior of the people. In the weaving parishes north of the river, the problem was also attributed to the popularity of the dissenting churches, which I'll come on to a bit later. At St George's Colgate, prayers and the sermon were held every afternoon. But being a stone's throw from two non-conformist meeting houses, it reported in 1784 that its congregation was, quote, rather thin on account of the many dissenting families. Even the traditional Anglican rites of passage were being ignored. St. Swithin's parishioners, it was said, were, quote, very remiss in bringing their children to the font for baptism, while St. Gregory's went so far as to say that baptism was a very unusual thing in this city. The religious instruction of children in preparation for confirmation was also being overlooked. <coughs> the underlying explanation, or perhaps the consequence of the fall-off in religious observance, was widely thought to be the general decline in public morals. The situation was highlighted in apocalyptic terms by Bishop Baggett in 1784, the same year as these visitation reports. In his charge to the clergy on taking up office, he declared, respect and deference to authorities are sunk almost to nothing. Religious observances are not only slackly attended, but spoken of with contempt and derision. No doubt the clergy and the parishes <coughs> did what they could to bring their congregations into line. But as Bishop Baggett admitted, the narrowness and insufficiency of maintenance obliged them to derive their income from two or more parishes, which meant that the ordinary plea, plea for non-residence <coughs> hath more foundation in this diocese than in most other parts of the kingdom. 
in Norwich well-endowed parishes like Sir Peter Mancross and St Andrews, which could afford resident clergymen with no duties elsewhere, with the exception rather than the work rule. Answers to the 1784 visitation questionnaires <coughs> show that <coughs> even when the, he was resident in his parish, the parson often derived supplementary income from duties in other parishes. Many more lived outside their Norwich parishes altogether, at varying distances from the city. The, the minister at St George's Tombland had a rectory at Marsham, the minister at St Clement's lived in a parsonage at Long Stratton. Some were resident in the cathedral <coughs> close and did duty at cathedral services as well as serving one or more other parishes <coughs> in the city. In cases of non-residents, a curate was sometimes provided to look after the parish, but this wasn't an ideal situation. To provide him with a source of income, the curate was usually allowed to keep the voluntary contributions of the parishioners. This money would otherwise have gone to the poor of the parish. So now let's go on to the dissenters. <coughs> the main rivals to the Church of England at the beginning of the Georgian period were the religious denominations which Voltaire referred to as sects. They were also known as old dissenters to distinguish them from the Methodists who came along, came to life later in the century, more of them later. Most old dissenters traced their origins to the Puritans, who in the 16th and 17th century maintained that the Church of England had only been partially reformed. They sought to purify it from its Catholic practices. There were four main, well there were many types of dissenters, but there were four main types. <coughs> the Presbyterians, who were Puritans who thought that the church should be ruled by sinners rather than bishops, otherwise they shared most of the beliefs of the Church of England. Then the separatists, independents or congregationalists, they gave went by several names, and like the Presbyterians, broke away entirely from the established church and formed separate churches. The Baptists, whose core belief was in believers' baptism by immersion, um, <coughs> and they, at the, from the beginning, were divided into separate branches called particular and general Baptists. And then the Quakers, who based <coughs> their beliefs and observances on obedience to their inner light. After the restoration of 1660, moderate Puritans, including Presbyterians, were expelled from the rank, ranks of the newly established Church of England. A range of punitive legislation outlawed non-conformist worship. Under the Test and Corporation Acts, municipal and political office under the Crown was reserved for members of the Church of England. After the Glorious Revolution of 1688, dissenters were partially tolerated. They were granted freedom of worship and allowed to construct their own chapels and meeting houses. But there was still a fear of religious anarchy expressed in this cartoon, which meant that the Test and Corporation Acts remained in force. However, there was a loophole 
known as occasional conformity. If you were a dissenter, you wanted to stand for election in the, in the, uh, in the corporation, you could circumvent the test, test Act by going to an Anglican communion service once a year. At the beginning of George I's reign, there were over a thousand <coughs> dissenting ministers in England <coughs> and over 1,400 by 1720. Although the evangelistic appeal of the Methodists subsequently checked the growth of old dissent, it was also compensated for by evangelical recruits from the Church of England. The late 18th century also saw the emergence of a new free-thinking form of what was called rational dissent, known as <coughs> Unitarianism, particularly strong amongst the intellectually inclined Presbyterians in the growing manufacturing towns, including Norwich, and many Presbyterian chapels went over to <coughs> Unitarianism. So let's talk about old dissent in Norwich. Religious dissenters in Georgian Norwich could look, up, look back on a very distinguished history going right back to the, <coughs> to the reign of Elizabeth I and the fourth. There were two particular Norwich Puritans who stood out, John Moore, the pastor of St Andrews from 17, 1573, known as the Apostle of Norwich, was the most famous of many Puritan preachers attracted to Norwich at this time. He, quote, wore the longest beard of any Englishman of his time, it was said, so that no act of his life may be unworthy of the gravity of his appearance. And I'm sure you'll agree, his appearance was grave indeed. Then there was Robert Brown, also in Norwich, who set up the first separatist church in England in 1581. He was hailed as the first Congregationalist. At the beginning of the Georgian era, most strands of old descent in Norwich remained particularly strong among textile workers. Religious descent was also firmly embedded among the city elite. Between 1740 and 1760, half of the mayors came from a dissenting background, taking use taking advantage of this occasional conformity by going to an Anglican communion service once, once a year. Up to the end of the 18th century, and here is one way in which Norwich is different, thanks to its uniquely tolerant society, animosity between the Church of England and the various forms of old descent was largely absent. According to one observer, sects forgot their fanaticism, parties laid aside their acrimony, rival pretensions concealed their jealousy, all united under the common banner of universal courtesy. <coughs> but the harmony was not set to last. The violent controversy sparked off by the French Revolution inflamed opinion in the city of Norwich. Most old dissenters hailed the new order being established across the Channel <laughs> as a rallying call for fundamental reform in Britain. But in sermons and tracts, 
Church of England clergy poured scorn on the new ideas of liberty, equality and fraternity. But at least Norwich didn't see anything like the riots in Birmingham, where three days of uninterrupted mob violence whipped up by two Anglican rectors destroyed the home and scientific equipment of the distinguished <coughs> scientist and Presbyterian preacher Joseph Priestley. In the early 19th century, the hitherto cordial relations between Norwich Anglicans and dissenters were re-established. Bishop Bathurst, the, uh, the Anglican <coughs> bishop, was friendly to dissenters. He was seen, it was said, walking arm in arm with persons of all persuasions in the streets of Norwich. He was also supportive of their, of their cause of political reform. So let's look at the different non-conformist dissenting denominations <coughs> one by one. First of all, the Norwich Presbyterians, who later became Unitarians. For most of the Georgian period, the Presbyterians stood out as the most thriving and influential of Norwich dissenters, even though they, was not as, they were not as numerous as other denominations. At the beginning of the Georgian era, they still used a meeting house constructed at the time of the 1689 Toleration Act. Because of, but because of the uncertainty of the future of religious toleration, it was tucked away behind other buildings. In 1753 it was declared unsafe and pulled down. It was replaced, of course, by the Octagon Chapel, opened in 1756 and widely praised, as it still is, for its dignity and beauty. The cost of over £5,000, a lot of money in those days, was raised entirely from its well-to-do congregation. But the alleged extravagance was not to the taste <coughs> of some other dissenters. John Wesley, the Methodist, visited it. He called it perhaps the most elegant meeting house in all Europe. But he added, how can it be thought that the coarse old gospel should find admission here? And a Quaker called Adamson said, a, good, a place good enough for thee must have been finished for £1,500. Don't forget it cost over 5000 What account will you give to your final judge for the additional thousands sunk and wasted? Thanks to the generosity of the wealthy congregation, there were usually two pastors, including one assistant at the Octagon, both generously remunerated with extra allowances to take account of their individual circumstances. Their vestry book, again in the Norfolk Record Office, records that in 1826 the pay of the new pastor was increased by £300 for the particular circumstances um, <coughs> attending his family. Religious and political orientation of the Octagon and its pastors evolved during the Georgian period. Under Peter Finch, it was Orthodox Presbyterian, which meant they used uh, what's called the Westminster Catechism, which was a, 
the, the, the authorised Presbyterian uh, book. But they later became more liberal and open-minded. Dr John Taylor, in a sermon on, open, on the opening of the octagon, rejected any labels, including that of Presbyterian. We are Christians and only Christians, he declared. In the same sermon, he also followed a cautious political course, praising the economic prosperity and freedom of conscience promoted under the Georgian regime, despite the, res the continuing restrictions on religious um, dissent. Dr. William Enfield initially took a similarly emollient line, giving the government the benefit of the doubt and retaining an admiration for the established church. He even attacked the, the vehemence and naivety of his colleague Joseph Priestley in Birmingham for endangering the gains that the, the centre has made. But for him, as for other dissenters, the French Revolution eventually opened up a new vista in which, quote, French liberty having been won, all else must follow, including self-government throughout the world and the establishment of universal equality. But that being said, he left political controversy mainly to the lay members of his congregation. In the meantime, the religious orientation of the octagon was again changing. By 1808, it was describing itself as a congregation of Unitarian dissenters. Thomas Madge, co-pastor from 1811, began to deliver a course of evening lectures to explain and defend the principles of, Unitar of the Unitarians. Despite its relatively small size, the congregation at <coughs> the Octagon provided a large contingent at the core of the city's intellectual <coughs> elite. And here again inside you can see the mace rests for, of the, of the um, <coughs> uh, octagon people who became mayors and so on. It also included among its congregation several figures of not just Norwich importance but national importance. William Taylor, a celebrated essayist, reviewer and translator of German literature, was a political radical, original member of the Norwich Revolution Society, who visited France in 1790, just after the revolution, where he quotes, kissed the earth of the land of liberty. William Smith, a respected and popular MP for Norwich from 1802, like Taylor, he recommended he welcomed the French Revolution, but he's mainly remembered in a national basis for his work on the anti-slavery campaign and the lifting of remaining restrictions on religious dissenters. Other famous Norwich Unitarians included John Edward Smith, distinguished botanist who continued the work of the Swedish natural historian Carl Linnaeus, pioneering the science of identifying, naming and classifying <coughs> plants and animals. Harriet Martineau, one of the first modern sociologists who campaigned for a variety 
of causes, including anti-slavery, women's rights, and so on. If you ever go to the Octagon Chapel, there's a nice little museum through at the back there, where you can see, you can read about all these people, and many more, uh, in greater detail. <coughs> right, now we come on to these separatists, whatever you call them, independents, or later congregationalists. At the beginning of the Georgian era, the Norwich <coughs> independents occupied the old meeting house, built in 1693, and of course still there in use in Colgate today. Like the Presbyterians almost next door, they chose a site well back from the road in the style of a house. The somebody called Reverend Samuel Newton, who was minister at the old meeting for no, no less than 56 years until his death in 1810, is perhaps the most important and certainly the most divisive figure in, in the old meeting during the Georgian period. He was a strong, I, did, I couldn't find any picture of him, but this is his manorial tablet above the pulpit in the old meeting house. He was a strong disciplinarian attached to a strictly scriptural approach to worship and critical of other dissenting faiths, including Quakers and especially Methodists, quote, more governed by strong feelings than plain scriptural sensations, he said. He even denounced what he called the noisy, empty popularity of some of his fellow independent preachers and the quotes ignorance and enthusiasm that have prevailed in our assemblies. Entries in the church book of the old meeting, again in the Norwich Record Office, indicate <coughs> his de divisive impact on the congregation, which led to the breakaway of two groups of members who left to set up separate but short-lived congregations. The first in 1782, according to the <coughs> church book, reportedly affected the mind of Newton's wife so deeply that she never entirely recovered from the effects of the shock. In the later years, Samuel Newton uh, preached, quote, sitting on a large chair, elevated for that purpose in the pulpit. You can see the pulpit there. Um, his appearance, in the, his appearance, it was said, was interesting and affecting. But according to an assistant minister, quote, he left the interest, in other words, the congregation, to his successor, delayed and, di and dilapidated, the smouldering ruins of a considerable edifice, exhibiting sufficient traces of its former glory to excite, excite sensations and melancholy in the mind of the spectator. There was some recovery among his successor, and particularly there were attempts to attract younger members. The names of new members in the church book in the early 19th century include Gerald and Boardman, destined to have an impact in later 19th century Norwich. In the meantime, <coughs> in 1819, a new independent chapel had been founded close by in Prince's Street. 
John Alexander, the first minister, had originally come to Norwich to preach to the Methodists, but fell out with them and led his congregation to set up the new chapel. It cost £4,800 and provided seating for as many as a thousand. When it fell into debt, the old meeting helped out. By the end of the Georgian period, its, its congregation exceeded that of the old meeting. Now we come on to the Baptists. As you remember, there are two sorts of Baptists, particular and general Baptists. The, uh, they had both actually fallen to a low ebb in Norwich by the early Georgian period. The particular Baptists were still using a public meeting place in the so-called East Granary of Blackfires, which they had occupied since 1689. You can see the plaque commemorating them still there. But in 1743 the congregation finally moved from the granary to a chapel opposite St Mary's Church Cosloney, site of the present church now known as the Central Baptist Church. Unusually for the time it had an indoor baptistry where they could baptise people by immersion. It was more common at that time to carry out baptisms out of doors in a river or I guess a pond. This building was finally demolished and a new church inaugurated in 1812 which was in turn destroyed by bombing in the Second World War. So the Central Baptist Church today is a relatively uh, modern one. <coughs> the first church book of the particular Baptists reveals a congregation fiercely attached to a strict code of discipline, both in doctrine and personal conduct. Members who strayed, often after denunciation by other members of the congregation, were typically examined at a church meeting, further questioned, admonished by deacons, the process sometimes ended in withdrawal of communion or excommunication. Sins included cursing and swearing, drinking too much, absenting oneself from church and failing to repay debts. Those accused put forward a strange <coughs> of Im improbable excuses. Accused of drunkenness, one church member said that he had, quote, contracted an ill habit while the church was without a minister, what do you expect? And said he didn't go to the tap house on purpose to be drunk, but he couldn't <coughs> deny that he liking that company which occasioned his being so. Another accused of improper conduct at a service said the reason for his turning his back on the Lord's table is because a psalm is sung and not a hymn. And the reason for his going out of the meeting during the time of singing every Lord's Day is because he has something against the brother that reads the psalm. Well, if you believe that, you believe anything. But there were more serious sins, <coughs> like adultery and fornication, which featured intermittently in the church book. There was obviously a risk that such cases might give the congregation a bad name. So particularly 
following a particularly long drawn out case in 1772 in which one woman member had allegedly either miscarried or had an abortion after an illicit affair, a church meeting adopted a new rule that, quote, no member shall mention the business of the church to any person who is not a member. Well, it was just as well. In another case, later that year, it emerged that a Mrs. Mary Rowe, a church member, was not the mother, well, sorry, was the mother and not, as had been thought, the nurse of a child she was looking after. It subsequently emerged that the father was none other than the pastor, Reverend Sam Fisher. Reverend Fisher evidently confessed and the church members devised a special service on the awful occasion of separating their pastor. Unlike some other dissenters, Baptists refused to take communion in Anglican Church to qualify for municipal office. But this didn't stop individual um, pastors from raising their head above the paraffin, parapet in radical politics. The Reverend Rhys Davis, David, pastor of St Mary's in 1778, violently attacked the government for making war on the American colonists. In two sermons in 1781 and 82, he railed against the damage that the war was causing to the Norwich economy and denounced the barbarity with which it was being conducted. Dr. Joseph Kinghorn, member of St. Mary's from 1789, also held radical views about the French Revolution. But by 1798 he became disillusioned, writing that the notions of liberty inspired by the revolution were at an end. <coughs> Under his leadership, St. Mary's turned a corner. His church became a spiritual power in the city and his influence was felt throughout the country. A great scholar, he was at home with intellectuals as well as humble people. Despite his strict views, he was on friendly terms with leading Anglicans and dissenters. Among the deacons at St Mary's at this period were Jeremiah and James Coleman, found founders of the firm of mustard makers. James Crome, the landscape paper, painter, also worshipped here. In the meantime, another particular Baptist church had been founded by somebody called John Wilkes, who came to Norwich in 1776. He became one of the most outspoken admirers of the French Revolution, and unlike Kinghorn, he didn't hesitate to proclaim his views from the pulpit. In a sermon preached on the second anniversary of the fall of the Bastille, in July 1791, he declared that Jesus Christ was a revolutionist and that the French Revolution was of God. The General Baptists also established themselves in Norwich in about 1670. That was what was known as the Priory, Ride Chapel, Priory Yard Chapel in Whitefriars Priory. I haven't got a picture of that. No, and there doesn't seem to be a plaque either. Their church book, again in the record office, 
displays a similar emphasis on discipline as in the particular Baptist congregations. In one case, in 1808, a similar disgrace overtook them when one of their pastors, a Mr. Dexter, was forced to resign after committing a, quote, enormous crime. Disappointingly, no further details are given in the church book. <coughs> a church book entry in September 1819, which I came across, however, does give an interesting example of attitudes to women at that time. Somehow, it seems, women had exceptionally been admitted to church business meetings, but objections were raised, and it was decided that they should henceforth be excluded, quote, unless desired by the church, and that the names of those who had previously been admitted should be deleted from the minutes. To under underline the point, a group of, of course, male members and deacons later testified that they knew, quote, by experience, the evils of women being a vote, given a vote in church affairs. They quoted Paul's first epistle, Bissell to the Corinthians in support of their point of view. And finally on all descent we come to the Norwich Quakers, otherwise of course known as the Society of Friends. <coughs> They'd already been ensconced for nearly 40 years in their meeting house on Upper Goat Lane at the beginning of the Georgian era. It was eventually replaced by the present meeting house erected on the same site in 1726. <coughs> they also at that time used a second meeting house built in, built in 1699 but bombed in World War II and also a burial ground in Gildencroft. During their tempestuous early years in Norwich the Quakers had been continually in trouble for their refusal to doff their hat in company and to take oaths for heckling at Anglican services, for keeping open their shops on Christmas Day, and refusing to pay tithes and church rates. But the meetings of their, but the minutes of their Norwich meetings, again in the record office, show that by the beginning of the Georgian period, they were becoming much more respectable. In March 1721, for example, their Norwich monthly meeting reported that the friends were gener quote, generally in good repute and esteem with most people of this city. Meetings for worship generally large on first days, which is what they call Sundays, and <coughs> attended by many people that do not make profession with us. In other words, those just sympathizers. <coughs> However, the annual reports to the yearly meetings of the Quakers in London also show that few of any, if any, of what they call convincements, i.e. Convert, uh, conversions of non-members who came to these meetings. In common with other dissenting <coughs> chapels, the Quakers monthly meetings investigated such sins as drunkenness, disorderly behaviour and took appropriate action. In <coughs> one relic of their earlier history, however, was the continual refusal of some friends to pay tithes and rates to what they called steeple houses, their work for churches. 
the value of goods confiscated from individual friends to pay these rates, which usually exceeded the amount due, were carefully recorded in their book of sufferings, again in the record office, and were sent on to the friends' yearly meetings in London so that it could be kept for posterity. Otherwise, the Quakers were scrupulous about paying other taxes and revenues and enforced among their members particularly high standards of fairness in their business dealings. And of course this reputation for probity did them no harm in their business dealings and increased their wealth and influence. Most notable among Quakers in the Georgian period were the members of the Gurney family who made fortunes in the textile industry and later turned to banking. You're probably familiar with most of them. John Gurney, the weaver's advocate, who defended the interest of the wool trade against the East India Company by securing an act which prohibited the wearing of calicoes. John, John Gurney, another John Gurney, son of the above, who together with brother Henry founded Gurney's Bank in 1775. This branch of the Gurneys moved from Magdalene Street to Earlham Hall in 1786, where John Gurney and his wife Catherine brought up 12 children. Earlham Hall, now the School of Law of the University of East Anglia, became, quote, the resort of the wise and good of all denominations. Despite strict upbringing by their mother, who died in 1792, the seven daughters cut loose, quote, intolerably bored seven sisters of Earlham, those dashing, frivolous, most unorthodox young Quakeresses who scoured the country in ride riding habits and sang and danced and flirted. <laughs> Elizabeth and <coughs> Louisa, two of the daughters, confided to their diaries how bored they were by Quaker meetings. Only two of the daughters uh, died as friends. But nevertheless, they developed a strong social conscience. Elizabeth under <coughs> underwent religious conversion, adopted Quaker dress, married Joseph Fry, and moved to London, where she became a pioneer in proving treatment of women prisoners. <coughs> Only the second woman to have her picture on the, on the five-pound note displaced by Winston Churchill. Her brother John Joseph Gurney was also active in, pr in prison reform and the anti-slavery movement, causes which he pursued on visits to America and, and continental Europe. Norwich Friends, Norwich Quakers, actually didn't increase in number as other non-conformist denominations. The ruling that Friends should only marry within the Quaker community perhaps helped to keep numbers down. 
by the end of the Georgian era, only about 300 were estimated to be worshipping at Upper Goat Lane and Gildencroft. How are we going for time? Oh dear. I'm going to overrun a bit, I'm afraid. Chris, okay. Right. I tested it out before. <coughs> so now we come to Methodism. Unlike Old Descent, Methodism didn't emerge within the Church of England until well into the Georgian era. The term was first applied to leading members of the Holy Club at Oxford University in the 1730s, especially John and Charles Wesley. But it sprang to life with open-air preaching, both of the Wesleys and John Whitfield, and also by less educated lay preachers who whipped up extreme religious enthusiasm, playing on the fear of eternal punishment in the torment of hell. But Methodism was met with suspicion from Anglican clergy and from, from others in wider society who saw it as a threat to traditional values, even as a religious cloak for sexual orgies. Methodism was particularly susceptible to internal disputes and, sp and splits, particularly on doctrinal grounds and partly as a result of the Wesley's autocratic, autocratic style of leadership. The disturbances which accompanied the rise of Methodism in Norwich <coughs> were more prolonged and bitter than anywhere else in England. The first Methodist preacher to arrive in August 1751 was James Wheatley. You can see this plaque in Tombland. He preached four or five times a day in the open air in Tombland and on Castle Hill, attracting as many as eight or 10,000 people. The first impressions were favorable. Newspapers and the city magistrates noted that whereas before they could hear nothing in the streets but profane cursing, they now seldom heard an oath. Quote, many an idle man became, in, became diligent, many a dishonest man became faithful. 2,200 people came together to form a Methodist society. A wooden building known as the Tabernacle was erected on Timber Hill, where Wheatley's congregations could find shelter from the weather. But almost from the beginning, Wheatley's meetings were dogged by violence. According to a contemporary source, the favourable impact of his preaching, quote, would still have continued had it not been for disaffected persons commonly called the Hellfire Club, in conjunction with Papists and Protestants who opposed this reformation. The disturbances quickly developed into full-scale riots. The tabernacle was attacked and made unusable. The doors, windows and pulpit feeding smashed. Tiles were ripped off the roof. Two women were thrown into the river. A man into a, into a cesspit. Wheatley himself was assaulted so that his life was said to have been in danger. 
although some of the perpetrators were arrested, they were actually treated quite leniently by the magistrates. And it seemed that their sympathies appeared by now to be as much with the rioters as with the object of their violence. The magistrates convened a meeting in December 1751 to enlist the corporation of gentlemen willing to second their endeavours in putting a stop to the greatest of enthusiasts called the Methodists. Enthusiasts in those days was a bad word, by the way. But the rioting continued into 1752. Extra constables were enrolled and in March the dragoons were called out. The, re <coughs> the reactions not only of the magistrates but of other religious domination denominations were equally hostile. Reverend Dixon, a Presbyterian minister, said he, Wheatley, is so illiterate that he doesn't speak true English. Some of the people had got a notion that he was an angel or superior to a man, but having been so happy to touch him, they declared that he is indeed a man, and that much beyond any man since the time of our Saviour <coughs> and his apostles. The worst of the lawlessness had burnt itself out by 1752. The following year, Wheatley collected funds for an impressive new meeting place, called the, also called the Tabernacle, erected in a more secluded location near the Adam and Eve pub. It's now been demolished, but the graveyard actually is still there. But Wheatley's troubles weren't at an end. Accusations of improper behaviour with young women, what we would now call sexual harassment, I suppose, began to surface in 1753. His sexual misdemeanours culminated in a lawsuit for adultery, fornication and incontinence. That's a funny word. In 1756, he was sentenced to do public penance in a linen cloth with a paper denoting his crime. In the meantime, the Wesleys had been observing Wheatley's doings in Norwich from afar with trepidation. They inserted notices in the Norwich press disowning any connection with Wheatley and announcing their intention of sending another Methodist preacher to Norwich to prevent further scandal. In July 1754, the Wesleys finally visited Norwich in person, where they found that, quote, the streets ring all day with James Wheatley's wickedness. Charles Wesley remained in Norwich for a time after his brother John's departure looking for a new meeting house as an alternative to Wheatley's tabernacle. He was eventually offered the lease of a ruinous brew house known as the Foundry in the yard of the Lamb Inn near the bottom of Timber Hill. In the years that followed, Methodism in Norwich was served by a succession of itinerant teachers, preachers with intermittent visits by John Wesley himself. The division between the followers of Wheatley and the Wesleys was apparently healed. In 1758, Wheatley offered Wesley the tabernacle and Wesley began to preach 
on his visits at both meeting places. But Wesley still found it hard to impose discipline on the tabernacle congregation. Wheatley's former colleagues even went into the pulpit after Wesley's sermons to contradict the sermon that had just been preached. <coughs> Wesley recorded in his journal, told them in plain terms that they were the most ignorant, self-conceited, self-willed, <coughs> fickle, intractable, disorderly, disjointed society that he'd ever encountered and that he was determined to end them or mend them. But this discipline continued to be variable and congregations fluctuated. In 1763 he recorded in his journal, quote, for many years I've had more trouble in this society than with half the societies in England. With God's help I will try one year longer. In the late 1760s Wesley began to look for a new home for his congregation to replace the tabernacle and the foundry. Eventually was a, a site was found and a new chapel was built on an abandoned landfill site in Cherry Lane in 1769. But they even had difficulty in, in, in buying a site because the, the reputation of the Methodists was so dicey. But in their new home the fortunes of the congregation again continued to fluctuate. By 1775 Wesley was able to record after one of his frequent visits, after preaching to an overflowing congregation, how wonderfully is the tide turned. I am become an honourable man at Norwich. God has at last made our enemies uh, at peace with us. Having outgrown Cherry Lane, the congregation moved to a new, larger chapel in Calvert Street in, Calvert Street in Cosmini in 1811 later demolished to make room for the Madeline Street flyover. It was supplemented by another one in Ladies Lane, where the Forum now stands, where we are, in 1824. Methodist numbers were further supplemented by the growth of the primitive Methodists, who broke away in 1811 over the Methodist <coughs> prohibition of camp meetings. They held huge meetings on Household Heath, at a site which became known as the Ranters Hole. In spite of all their vicissitudes, the combined membership of the Methodist congregations in Norwich had grown to 3,600, making them by far the largest dissenting denomination at the end of the Georgian period. I'll, I'll leave it there, I could say a few words about Catholicism, but what do we draw from this? As is one thing I've always emphasised in in these talks is how Norwich was a slightly different society. It was a more tolerant society, and there's certainly you've got this tolerance between the old dissenters and the Church of England. Methodism was some for some reason or other an exception to this rule, and I can't really explain why. It wasn't certainly wasn't the Wesleys themselves who were very uh, moderate and sensible people. Just yeah. Sorry, then. just yeah. sorry, um, okay, I'll 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 leave it there. That's wonderful. And if, if with your permission I'll ask for questions. Yeah. Just just a quick one, where was Cherry Lane? Cherry I'm Lane not familiar with it oh, at all. Um, 
go along the... Do you know where the fire station is on the inner ring road? The new one? No, the old one. There's one there on, on, there on the main road. It's across the road from there, I think. Yeah. It, the, the building doesn't exist anymore. Oh, what, Deerham Road? Um, no, it's more by the um, North Washington Road, I think. Yeah. So outside the city? Uh, outside the city walls, yeah. <coughs> any other questions? I hope there aren't any people whose toes I've trodden on. I just <laughs> told the stories as it came out from my researches in the in the uh, record office and other places. <coughs> well, if there aren't any other questions, I'm sure we'd like to join me and uh, give Neil a round.